Hey friend, I'm Catherine, and I'm so glad you have found Her Place, a community for women who have experienced trauma and need a friend who gets it. From sharing my own testimony and healing journey to having therapists and other survivors join in on the show, this is a place to find healing, joy, and a hope for a brighter tomorrow. In this episode, I will be going in deep as I share my full testimony with all of you. After planning for this episode, I decided to break it up into two parts because God revealed something so beautiful to me. I have two parts to my story, y'all. And the first part is where I knew nothing but darkness and pain. And the second part is the battle within myself, my mind, against the enemy and God's fight to save me and show me who he is and always has been. And always will be. I honestly feel like I might actually have a third part. And it's what I'm currently in right now. It's what I'm living. And it's wild because I came up with a title for a book a while ago. That I feel like God is calling me to write. And it's what the third part of my story would be called. And all of this was just revealed to me preparing for this episode. I obviously can't give it away. (laughs) But what I can say is that God is so good. And he is so faithful. And I'm just so grateful that he never gave up on me. I owe it all to him. In this first part of my testimony, I will be talking about things that may be triggering for you. And that's okay, friend. I want you to prepare your heart and mind. Check in with yourself to see if this is something you can do today. And take it at your pace. You aren't weak, friend. You're incredibly strong. And I'm so proud of you for showing up for yourself. The sensitive topics I will be talking about are sexual abuse, verbal abuse, depression, suicidal thoughts and attempts, self-harm, and eating disorders. If you need to come back to this or skip over, I pray you honor where you are on your healing journey and shower yourself with the grace and love you deserve. I also want to preface that I love my parents and our relationship has been in a place of healing for the past two to three years. Um, but we still have a ways to go, but it has been so healing for me to just be real with them, to set boundaries, ask hard questions and see them as Jesus does. And I'm not trying to air their dirty laundry, but this is the reality that I lived and it is all a part of my trauma and my healing journey. I love you, mom and dad, and I appreciate your support by listening. As you all listen to my testimony, I pray it reveals God's grace, power, love, and redemption. Because when I look upon the life that I get to live, that is all I see now. Be vulnerable with me, friend, and listen with your heart wide open. Hey friend, Catherine here, founder and creator of Her Place is Found. I am so glad you found my little footprint here in the podcast world. It's an honor to take up some space in your heart and mind today, and I pray that it brings great joy into your life, one episode at a time. With this episode, I really want to open us up in prayer and just really cover all of our hearts in the presence of God. So here we go. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to use my testimony to bring you glory and comfort to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7 says, All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, 
we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the comfort that you give. Thank you for seeing me and fighting for me. Thank you for fighting for all of us and seeing us as your beloved children. I am the least of these and still growing and healing, and yet you've called me to something so much bigger than myself. I am here to obey, to trust, to walk out my faith in you, and to show the world the miraculous things and the miraculous work you have done in my life. You saved me and you changed me, and I pray that those listening hear your love. I pray that they feel your presence and your power and welcome you into their lives with their heart wide open. I pray your comfort covers their hearts and that you give strength to all of us as we speak on the darkness of our world, but the light of who you are, God. I pray this is the start of brokenness being rewritten in redemption in the name of Jesus. I pray this is the start of darkness being extinguished in the lives of so many. Father, I pray that this is the start of a new beginning for so many women. Give me the right words to say, God, and I give you all the glory for my life and what I now have. You are so good, so faithful, so loving. Even when we fall short, you never do because you never can. That's who you are. And I praise you for that, God. I give you all the glory for this. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, now that we have Jesus in the room, it's time to really get into this and share what Jesus has done in my life because it's pretty mind-blowing that I'm still alive. Honestly, it's insane to me to think that I've uh, made it through all of the things that I've been through and I get to live the life that I have now um, every day. You know, I'm just in awe of what I have and it never falls short on me that I have a husband that loves me and who is faithful to me and who would give anything and everything for me and it does not fall short on me that I have a son I have a nine-month-old son that I was able to birth and, you know, I, my birth story didn't go as planned, but God is faithful and I will share my birth story with all of you just to show you how God has been working through me to see his character and his love um, and his faithfulness, y'all. Even when our plans and our desires don't work out, God's plan always does and his plan is the best. And it always points us to him. And that's where we are always supposed to be looking towards is him. And so during this testimony, I pray that you just see him through all of this. I pray that you see his hand just intricately woven through this entire story. Um, I read this book by Francine Rivers. She is my absolute favorite author. She's incredible. 
Um, she's a Christian author. She writes uh, fiction. Honestly, I don't know how she does it. She has like all these books. And I'm like, how does your brain, like, how do you do this? It's just, it's, it's beautiful that she's able to write these stories and so many of them that are so real and so raw. Um, but anyway, I read this book called uh, Scarlet Thread. Um, and oh gosh, I can't even, I can't tell you about it because it's going to give it away. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll do a little, I, whatever. Okay. I'm sorry. If you want to read this book, go read it. There's still like, you still see Jesus and it's incredible. But so there's this quilt. Maybe I should just say, okay, there's a scarlet thread. Okay. The scarlet thread represents Jesus. All right, y'all. And his thread is all throughout my life. Even when I didn't feel him, I'm reading the book of Esther right now. And even like that book does not talk about God once. Like it does not mention his name, but you can see Jesus, right? Like, you know, he is there, you know, he is working every part and like he's there. And, um, I'm I'm studying this book and like, I look back at my life and it's just like, wow. Like you can just, you see God, even if you don't know him, even if you don't like feel him or hear him, he is there and he is constantly working and constantly setting our feet where they need to go. And even if we step off track, you know, like he gets us back there um, gently and lovingly. And that's just, that's my story. Like it's, it's a, it's so beautiful to me to just look back at my life and see God and to know that like he didn't cause all of my pain, right? He, he was there for me through my pain. Um, but anyway, oh my gosh, I just get so excited about what Jesus is doing and what he has done, but let's get to the testimony, shall we? All right. So first off, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a fun fact is that my son was actually born at the same hospital I was. You know, life is just so wildly beautiful like that, um, but growing up and almost all of my life up until six years ago, I did not have this outlook on life. It was actually quite the opposite. When I was a little girl, I really had a picture-perfect life. Like, we lived in a really nice house, we had family dinners at home, in our neighbor's house, and we had friends on our street. My brothers actually hung out with me, so that was cool. Um, and I remember when my brothers, uh, we would wait for our next door neighbor who had a pool. Um, we would wait for them to leave so we could sneak in and go to their pool. And so they had this big old fence around their pool and my brothers would help me get over this fence. And I'm assuming we went swimming, but that's as far as my memory goes, um, And, you know, it had to have been fun because I remember it. (laughs) And other really fond memories that I have from my childhood happened on the stairs of our first house um, where my brother Matt taught me how to tie my shoes when I was three years old. I remember us playing in the creek at my brother's friend's house and killing a copperhead. I'm not really sure how much of a fond memory that is, but um, it was me spending time with my brothers and... I guess at the time I thought killing a copperhead was like super cool and I was pretty much a tomboy growing up so yeah it was probably pretty fun to me. (laughs) I don't go around killing copperheads now but if I did see one I probably would because they're poisonous. 
Um, and I got to protect my kid, you know, and myself. Hello. Anyway, there's one other memory that is so fond to me. And I just, I, it's like a, it's on repeat in my mind because it happened so, it happened so often for me. And um, it was riding in my dad's deep green Jaguar convertible singing Live in La Vida Loca. And it was either, I, he had two Jaguars. It was either red or green. Um, but for some reason, the deep green one is really sticking out to me. So he liked Jaguars, clearly. <laughs> and he also loved Christmas. So it makes a lot of sense why he had red and green. Um, anyway, not together, separate times. Um, but he was Santa Claus. Anywho, um, all of these memories, they happen over the span of a few years. And I hold on to them dearly because everything else in my mind and in my childhood, it's all pretty much a blur. And our brains do this in order to protect us from deep, deep pain and traumatizing memories. And my brain did such a good job at this um, up until I was in middle school. But let me back up to where it all changed for me and my family. The picture perfect life, you know, it stayed intact, but not for me, just for anyone looking in. We moved from our medium-sized house where we killed the copperhead um, to a house that was previously owned by an ex-NBA or NFL player. I can't remember, Um, but you get the picture. We lived on the golf course, and you could see Lake Norman from the second-story balcony. The wooden spiraling stairs in the main entrance was my favorite feature about the house, and I would hide underneath the stairs all the time. It was beautiful, and it was perfect, but it was honestly the end of my really fond memories, except riding in that deep green jaguar my dad had, singing Living La Vida Loca. Growing up in my family, it was it was a pretty tough task, and I've had to do so much personal healing and laying down my hurt and anger at God's feet over and over, and I'm honestly not sure if that'll ever really stop when it comes to my family. You know, every time I go to see them, I pray. I pray before I go into my parents' house, and sometimes I let the Holy Spirit hold my tongue, and sometimes I don't, and I leave feeling so deflated and angry at myself for feeling like I have failed God, which let me let you know, y'all, which that's impossible, okay? But I still feel that way, um... And I want my family to see what God has done for me and in me so that they will want to know him the way that I do. Like Paul always had this thorn in his flesh, which represents his hardships and struggles. And I think my family will always be a thorn that brings me to God's feet over and over again. And that's what my life has been. An endless amount of thorns covering my body that have brought me to the feet of Jesus over and over. And I'm here to tell you, friend, that he can remove them. But he will leave one or two or however many he sees fit to remind us that we need him and that our flesh is weak. But thank God he is made strong in our weaknesses and we can go to him when we are weak and he makes us strong. Even though God makes us strong, right? My family, we had so many weaknesses. And even though we prayed before every meal and we went to church every Sunday, we were always late, but we made it. Um, 
my pastor did an entire sermon on those who came late um, to church. And I'll share it in my next uh, part because it caused a lot of issues for me with how I viewed God. Um, but that's that's the second part. Anyway, we were always late to church. And we really didn't live like we knew God, you know. I mean, I feel like I probably did because I'm a little angel child. But... <laughs> I'm kidding, y'all. I mean, I was a great kid, but um, my dad was super religious, and um, but his life just didn't represent God. And to me, like being religious isn't knowing God; it's just living out these like laws. And you know, like back in the Moses time when people had to follow certain laws, um, and but it didn't really represent like that they knew God, um, and so looking back, like, that's how I see my dad. Um, that's how I saw my dad as just this religious person who followed all these rules and had us follow all the rules. Um, and I don't really know if he knew God. Um, but now that's changed, um, which makes my heart happy. But anyway, I don't know about my brothers. I can't really remember. They went to church with us and, um, they were there and, but their lives were, their lives were chaos, but this isn't about my brothers. <laughs> they didn't cause too much trauma for me. Love y'all. Um, but my dad was a doctor or is a doctor, but retired. Um, his favorite line to say to this day is, trust me, I'm a doctor. You can take this man out of the long white coat, but you can't take him out of what he spent the majority of his life becoming. It was his identity, and it always will be. His patients adored him, and so many people drove from South Carolina to see him. And I'm sure they all thought he was perfect, like the perfect Christian dad and husband. And my parents, you know, they worked together, and they worked all the time at this point. And they came home late, and because they came home late, we would eat out at restaurants almost every night for dinner. Um, it became a very tedious task for me when my parents would ask me, where do you want to go? And I just, <laughs> it's, it's, this is poured over into my life now with my husband who asked me, what do I want to eat? And I'm like, I don't know. So this started very early on, clearly. Um, but yeah, my parents would ask me, I would say, I don't know. And they would pick one place and I would be like, no, I don't want that. <laughs> and then I would make a decision, right? Oh, man. Anyway, my dad worked really hard and he bought me whatever I wanted and needed. Like he would take me to CVS all the time to buy me makeup or whatever I needed, wanted more like. Um, my parents provided for our family and they took us on amazing trips. And my dad supported me when I moved across country and even out of the country. And overall, he was a good dad. And my parents were good parents. They just did not know how to be good parents. The memories I have of my dad honestly aren't all that great. They're full of him talking about other women and young girls in front of me and my mom. And telling my brothers to look at them and go talk to them. And... There were repeated nights of my dad being nowhere to be found and me asking my mom where he is, 
only to hear her hurting response of, who knows, he won't answer the phone. So I would try calling him, thinking, oh, I'm his daughter, he loves me, he'll answer the phone. It was the same outcome, so I went to bed or would be there when he came home and his response was, I went for a drive or I went to the grocery store and only coming home with maybe one or two things. We used to have a joke in our family, well, I guess we still have it, um, but it's, it's a joke that we say, if we need something fast from the store, not to send my dad. But now, you know, I don't think it's that funny. Um, I always had this feeling or suspicion, I guess, that my dad was being unfaithful to my mom. And this anger and hurt just grew inside of me every time he spoke ill to my mom or asked her for anything. And I went through this radical stage of feminism my senior year at UNC. I took an independent research study class where I read books on abuse and the effects of childhood trauma in order to write books for kids and parents and, of course, young girls and women around my age. Um, And one day, prayerfully, they will all be published. But anyway, all of this just, like, it unleashed all of this harbored, all of these harbored feelings toward my dad. And I wanted to do something about it. I, like, not only was I full of anger about the way he treated my mom, But also because he never sold the house we could move away from that I was sexually molested in. It wasn't until a few years ago that I made boundaries for myself and I actually kept them. (laughs) And one of them was to not go to their house because it was triggering for me. My parents finally sold that house last year in 2023. My senior year at UNC when I was doing all this research and All these feelings and anger came up. I asked my dad why he never sold that house. And and he said the thought never occurred to him. I just didn't understand that at all. Like, how is that even possible? I honestly think it was because my dad was so focused on building and creating this image that he made it to the top. That he had the dream house and the dream car. And he was a member of the nicest country club. And he was married and had kids and... And then together, my parents were focused on maintaining this image. And that was so far from the truth of our family dynamic and the health of our family. And all of this just made me ready to burst. And I basically did. I thought in order to make my stance against hurtful men like my dad had been, I needed to stand my ground. I felt this need to protect my mom from my dad because... All I saw in their marriage was fighting, control, and a misogynistic man who I believed was unfaithful to my mom. He would ask my mom for a Diet Coke and I told her to sit down, he can get it. And when he didn't and would ask again, I would get it for him in order to protect my mom. If she wasn't going to stand up to him, I was. And so I did. I hated men and I hated the power that they held and abused. Y'all, anger took over inside of me and I couldn't see my dad as the dad I saw when we were driving in that deep green Jaguar singing Live in La Vida Loca. Anger has been something that I've had to work through my whole life and God has done a great work in me as of this last year with my anger and I'm excited to share that with you later. Um, But, you know, saying all of this out loud about protecting my mom Like, maybe I was living a crazy life 
Um, Because the fact that I wanted to protect my mom always blew me away. Because my mom is the one person I still can't seem to fully heal from. Growing up, my mom hated herself. She would look at herself in the mirror and tear herself apart like she was feeding herself to a pack of hyenas. I hate hyenas. They eat their prey while they are alive. And that's how my mom was. And when that wasn't enough for her, she unleashed that feeding frenzy on me. She was terribly verbally abusive to me and said things that I will never be able to forget. The silent treatment was her personal favorite. Fights out in public, another one of her personal favorites. All of this pain she felt and this hate she had for herself made me hate myself too. She told me to hide my body from people. So when I started playing sports in high school, I was so embarrassed by my body that I changed in the bathroom stall. I was never allowed to wear a two-piece bikini, and even as an adult, I feel so naked and vulnerable in them. But all of this, you know, it wasn't all on her, all these feelings that I had about my body. Once we moved to the new house on the golf course, my brothers made new friends and I followed suit. We became friends with this other family who lived across the street from us. Their two older sons were close to my brother's age, which were 11 and 9 years older than me. And the youngest son was a year older than me. I was five when we moved here. We all became best friends and my parents even let me have sleepovers there, which seriously never should have happened. We trusted them, but unfortunately it was misplaced trust. When I was around eight years old, the middle son walked in on me and his brother staring at each other naked, trying to figure out what our bodies were because... We, had, we heard our brothers talk about sex and naked bodies, and we wanted to understand. We were exposed to way too much at an early age. Anyways, the brother came in. I shamefully ran to the bathroom, and he laughed and told us dinner was ready. After dinner, we went outside to play, and he was waiting for me on the golf cart in the garage. The younger brother came to see what his brother wanted when he called me over, but he told his brother to go, and he did. As I sat on the golf cart with the middle brother, he said, we can keep doing what you two are doing, but you have to promise not to tell anyone. I didn't know what this meant or even what we were doing upstairs, but I said, okay, and I promised. After that, every time we played hide and seek, he took me to hide with him and he sexually molested me. This went on for about a year and it finally stopped when he was almost caught by his brother, my friend, when we were at their grandma's house. When my friend found us, he said his grandma wanted us to go out back to collect the walnuts that had fallen from the tree. To this day, I still cannot eat walnuts. It is one of the most traumatic memories I have over the course of his abuse. I didn't understand what had happened to me, y'all. But after reading the books about abuse during my last year at UNC, I realized my behavior during and after his abuse showed signs of sexual abuse and my parents didn't see it or they chose not to see it as an underlying issue. Nearly every day in elementary school, I would go to the office complaining about stomach pain and ask them to have my mom come and get me. 
Sometimes she would. Sometimes she wouldn't. I would undress my Barbie dolls and play with them naked. I experimented with my friend who was a girl the same age as me. And my parents caught us and beat me and told me to never do it again. So I didn't. And they never talked to me about it either. One night when I couldn't sleep, I found porn on the TV and it seemed so familiar to me. So I started watching porn. My brain suppressed all of these memories until one day in middle school. I was in sex ed class and my teacher was talking about rape. This is the one and only time you will hear me use that word because it is one of the most triggering words for women or men, but I'm just mostly speaking to women here. So if that's you, I do apologize, but it's the only time you'll hear me say it. And in this instant in middle school, it was like a dam broke in my mind and every memory came flooding back. I don't even want to know what my face looked like in this moment, but all I could think was that that is what happened to me. I replayed all of it back in my head praying to God that I was making it all up or I was wrong or both. I wrote a note to my boyfriend at the time telling him what I thought had happened to me as a little girl. His mom found it, told the school, and then made him break up with me on my birthday. My dad used to go all out for my birthdays. He would give me a limo and take me and my friends wherever I wanted to go. I remember standing at the door of the limo on the phone with this boyfriend asking where he was and hearing him say he couldn't come because his mom found the note and she's making him break up with me. What a birthday present, huh (laughs) y'all? On top of that, his mom told the school. Shame rushed through me, disgust and this thought that no one would ever love me because I'm dirty and I'm used became my focus. It became my identity. This woman took another choice away from me, the choice to tell my family, which I was absolutely terrified to do because I did not want my brothers to kill my abuser and end up in prison. I was 13 years old when all of this happened and I remember sitting in the empty fishbowl of a cafeteria waiting for my mom to come get me from school and Because the school told her what had happened. I remember turning around and seeing my mom staring at me through the glass. And I just remember feeling shame. I knew I messed up the health of the fishbowl my parents so desperately tried to keep perfect for anyone looking in. I became the poisonous lionfish everyone in my family avoided. My mom and I and the principal and the counselor, we walked up this incline in the hallway in silence. She later had me tell my dad in the car after he was done getting a haircut. I sat in the back of the car with my hands under my legs and my head down as my beet red face told my dad what her neighbor did to me. After that, my mom told me no one needed to know about it, to never talk about it or tell anyone. So I didn't. I didn't bring it up and neither did anyone in my family. Literally no one ever talked to me about my trauma. So I had to carry the pain of it all alone. It was the largest elephant in the room that lived under the rug and it seemed to only trip me. 
about two years ago, my mom was trying to figure out if legally I could still press charges. Because when I was 13, I, I just didn't want to. I said I didn't want to because I couldn't face him. But I didn't know the benefit it would bring to other people knowing he was a predator. And my mom, you know, she started calling some lawyers and one told her as long as my abuser was 16 years of age at the time, I could press charges and I needed to go to the police station to get a copy of the police report. My dad went with me and thank God for it because when we walked into the police station, it was as if I was that same 13-year-old girl who went to file a police report and I just could not breathe. I couldn't talk. Tears were just streaming down my face as my body shook. The police report withheld all information about my abuser because he wasn't 16. He was 14 years old and protected by the law even though he knew exactly what he was doing to me. And I'm pretty sure the law has changed um, and that it changed in 2019. So now if you commit sexual abuse on a child and you're under 18, then you can't be charged with this offense. I'm sorry, but are we supposed to be protecting survivors or criminals? Because it seems like our government, especially the North Carolina government, because this is a North Carolina rule or law, um, it seems like they're protecting criminals. And I'm sure other states have some ridiculous laws like this too. Things need to change, y'all. Survivors need to be protected. Children need to be protected. I was now a 28-year-old woman holding this police report that could change things for me. And I was ready to press charges if I could. The 13-year-old me was ready to be proud of who I had become. And I know she's proud of me now. But I wanted to protect the other girls from him, from my abuser. It took me a few days to muster up the courage to read the police report. But once I did, my heart broke into a million pieces all over again. It was pages and pages of my school and a police officer trying to reach my mom. Them telling her what happened and her refusing to come get me. It wasn't until they told her they would get DSS involved that she came and not without expressing her anger and them involving the police to begin with. I just could not understand the woman who is meant to be the safest place for their child refused to come wrap her daughter in her arms and protect her and heal her and comfort her. My mom refused me and she has refused me all of my life. I've never felt good enough, smart enough, or just simply enough for my mom. It didn't matter the good grades I received or the college I got into. On a full ride, I might add. It was just never enough. I have never felt enough. And that has seeped into so many friendships and especially my marriage. And even now when we FaceTime and She'll say hi to my husband and Dawson, and my dad is there to say, and Catherine. I don't think it's my mom's intention to hurt me, but her actions do. My brothers got into so much trouble growing up, but they could do no wrong in her eyes. My brothers were pro-athletes and, and so smart, you know, at everything. And John Michael could have gone to Harvard with his perfect SAT score if only he had tried a little harder in school. 
That's my mom's go-to line. I don't know when it was, but I eventually stopped trying to just please my mom. She was clearly hurting from her own trauma and she has her own issues that she doesn't really want to work through. And as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. I was around 23 years old when I realized sharing my testimony to help others is the call God has placed in my life. And when she expressed her disapproval, I chose to start ignoring her. But let's go back to middle school after my mom came and got me from the cafeteria. I finished middle school and I finished in the principal's office because I literally could not sit in class. All I did was cry. And so that summer I told my parents I wanted to talk to a therapist. She was absolutely terrible. So I told my parents I was okay and I didn't want to go back. And they said okay. I started high school at one of the biggest schools in our area called Hopewell. I wore pajamas and baggy clothes to school every day because I didn't want anyone to look at my body. One day, I decided I was done feeling sorry for myself, so I put on normal clothes to help me feel better about myself. I wore a skirt below the fingertip rule, okay, and some shirt or sweater. Um, My history class was out back in one of the two-door trailers, and these two guys kept trying to get me to leave my spot in the front row to come sit with them. I repeatedly told them no, and I stayed up front. Our teacher let us out a few minutes before the bell. One followed behind me, pulled me back by my backpack, and went up the back of my skirt, while the other one went up the front of my skirt because he had gone out early of the front door. The bell rang. I was swarmed by people. I screamed and I ran. But then they found me again outside the cafeteria during lunch and They chased me in a circle. Everyone around just watched and laughed. I later told my PE teacher and he said I could either report it or leave it alone. After what had happened to me when I was younger, I chose to leave it alone. When my oldest brother, John Michael, got home, he could tell something was wrong with me and he pushed until I told him. The next day, my parents took me to the principal's office and The principal said, my skirt must have been too short. The next thing I hear my dad is slamming his fist onto the table, yelling and saying, I'm never going back to that school. So I never did. My mom and dad worked together at my dad's private medical practice in Concord, and they found a private Christian school for me to attend there. So I would be close if anything happened again. The school was small and everyone had been there since they were young and they didn't take it kindly when an outlier came along and messed up their order. There was a group of popular girls and they told everyone not to talk to me, so no one did, except one girl. If you're listening and you know who you are, thank you for being so kind to me and choosing to be my friend over being liked by everyone else. I was bullied really badly by this group of girls all while battling depression And if you weren't liked by these girls, you could be sure you were a target. They would literally rig homecoming by making people vote for specific people they made fun of just so they could laugh at them. I remember standing in the bleachers as everyone laughed and feeling so heartbroken for the guy and girl on the field. They made people's lives hell. And if the one friend I had wasn't at school, I ate my lunch in the bathroom stall 
Girls would come in and snicker, knowing it was me. I tried pulling my legs up onto the toilet seat, but it didn't matter. They knew I was in there hiding. A math teacher I had one year held lunch in his classroom for anyone who wanted to eat in there. And it was my safe haven because I had somewhere to go besides the bathroom or the cafeteria. And it was the only year I liked math. (laughs) Wow, y'all, a lot of my life revolves around a cafeteria. (laughs) Good thing I like food now. (laughs) Anyway, my friend had introduced me to a junior guy at another school and It was our rival school, and he was the pitcher for their baseball team. I thought I was really cool dating a junior, and I thought I would earn some grace with the popular girls, but I'm pretty sure it just pissed them off. One day, my friend outside of school, who I had known for years, knew of him and tried to warn me that he was cheating on me. You know how the story goes. I didn't believe her. He told me she was lying. I believed him, and I picked a guy. Well, my friend was right. My whole world came crashing down. He was the first guy I had talked to about what had happened to me since since the boyfriend who broke up with me on my birthday. And I let this guy touch my body. I felt like a fool. Like he took advantage of me and that I was never going to be good enough for anyone because of the things I have been through. I felt dirtier, uglier, and even more used. My depression became so severe I started throwing everything up that I ate, and some days I would just binge eat and then purge myself. I had such a severe eating disorder. It was such a vicious cycle, and I would just sit on my bathroom floor contemplating suicide and how I should do it. Everyone in my family smoked but me, so it was easy to get a hold of a lighter, and so I would burn myself. It seemed like the easiest thing to hide. As the bullying got worse at school and my home life grew increasingly hostile and empty, my mind and body knew nothing but darkness. So I decided I no longer wanted to be alive. I was done hurting, I was done feeling alone, and I was done fighting for a life that clearly didn't want me. And I was done being a burden on my parents who made me feel like they just did not love me because they didn't care. I tried drowning myself twice. The first time, I was about to take my last breath, but I thought I should probably put on some clothes in case my dad finds me. A few days later, I tried again. This time on my last breath, I heard, Catherine, what are you doing? And I literally felt something pull me by my shirt and out of the water. I sat there and I cried. I didn't tell anyone what had happened because who cared to listen or ask if I was okay? No one, right? That's how I felt. I just kept going to school and coming home to blast my music with my door locked. My parents didn't know what to do with me, so they sent me to a summer camp that freshman year of high school, and it was a Christian camp called Caswell, and that's the summer That Jesus saved my life. What you just heard are the hardest parts of my testimony. All of this pain and heartache and anger, it seeps into the next part of my testimony. It's the beginning of a new battle. Yes, I found Jesus, but it is a new battle and it's the moment I enter into the desert. 
The next 11 years of my life is a battle of my mind, me running and moving to California and then Europe, going in and out of abusive relationships, denying God, finding him, and then eventually healing, forgiving, staying, and dying to my old self every day so I could and can continue to learn and accept and believe God's love for me. It's going to get bumpy, y'all. Friend, if you've heard anything, I pray that it's that healing isn't linear. Our journey with God and becoming more like him never ends. It's a process, but it's a process God walks through with you. If you know pain and trauma, my heart hurts for you, and I'm here to sit with you on the bathroom floor with the hope of keeping you from getting as far as I did. You are wanted and loved so dearly, friend. If your life isn't good right now, then God is not done yet. There will be joy radiating out of you one day, and you will reach your promised land. My friend just sent me this Bible verse from Job thirteen fifteen, and it says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. If you know the story of Job, you know he lost everything and got super sick, and yet he stayed faithful to God. He just says this honest and bold prayer to God. Though you slay me, though you give and take away, I will hope in you. But this is what I'm feeling, God. This is how God wants us to come to him, friend. Honest and bold and surrendered. He doesn't need your perfect faith or dry eyes. He needs your brokenness and tear-filled eyes so he can do a remarkable thing in you and for you. God invites you to be honest with him. If you're angry, be angry. If you're hurting, go to him hurting. Tell him. He will meet you where you are and he will show up. His character reigns true and though your circumstances scream pain, God is faithful because he cannot be unfaithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 Friend, thank you so much for listening to this first part of my testimony with your heart wide open. It is heavy, but there is light at the end of it. Jesus saved me and he continues fighting for me over the next 11 years of my life. Come back in two weeks to hear my healing journey that is covered in the struggle against myself, my mind, the enemy's tactics to keep me in the darkness and God's unfailing love and fight through it all. His hand is through my entire story and I cannot wait for you to see it. If you are in the desert right now, friend, go to God and seek him. Let him quench your thirst with the living water. Love you always, friend, and see you next time. Thank you so much for entrusting me with your time and listening with your heart wide open today, friend. I pray you were filled with hope for a brighter day. To get daily inspo, support, and friendship, find me on Instagram and Facebook. And for more details, head to the website at www.herplacesfound.com. See you next time and love you always.